0: for the last two Sunday evenings. We've had a break from Ephesians. We're back to it tonight, and we'll be in it non-stop now through until Easter. Uh, And our focus is the really practical teaching in chapters 4, 5, and 6, part 2 of the letter. Looking at the letter as a whole, it divides in two. Part 1, chapters 1 to 3, and part 2, chapters 4 to 6. Part 1, 1 to 3, and we looked at that in one study a month ago, and you can listen online. It would help you to uh, keep going back to that so we apply the teaching in the second half uh, wisely. Part one, chapters one to three, is about who we are as Christians, supernaturally who we are because of what God has done in our lives, and uh, even more important in the context of this letter, who we are as a church. Supernaturally, uh, what is this body of people that we call Chalmers Church along with the other, uh, others who are not with us uh, tonight? And part two, chapters four to six, is about how we are to live as Christians in a church. And that's really important. How we are to live as Christians in a church. And the words in a church, in a local church, are are, are always are pretty much always assumed in the New Testament. We're not meant to live alone as Christians. We're meant to live in churches with other Christians. Now, um, I'd encourage you, as I said to Uh, dig back into part one of the letter about God's uh, plan, uh, God's uh, call of us into his plan, and God's uh, power. Just very, very quickly, God's plan is to, in the fullness of time, that's uh, in the future, to unite all things under Christ. And what that means is Christian people through all the generations, living in perfect harmony with one another and with Christ, in a perfectly harmonized, restored creation, the new creation. That's God's plan. So does the church have a future? Answer, the future is the church, the eternal church of Christ in the new creation. That's God's plan not yet. God's plan now is that in the visible local churches that are scattered all over the earth, the multifaceted wisdom of God and power is on display. So in this room, in this church family, along with the others who are not here, we are the closest thing on earth with other living local churches to eternity. We show people what eternity is like because we are reconciled to one another and to God. And we have a community that is unlike any other community on the earth. And God's plan, we are called to participate in it, And participating in it means being converted and joining a local church. That's why the people who were here last Sunday night who profess faith immediately joined a local church because we live as Christians in community on the earth. And God's power is at work within us. You take the supernatural power out of this local church called Chalmers and there would be havoc and chaos If you planted a church called Redeemer without the supernatural power of God in it, it would be chaos. There is supernatural power amongst us and in us all of the time. And with all that, we come to the practical stuff in the second half of the letter. So let's read chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. "'I therefore,' Paul writes, "'a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called.' Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ Joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, have that uh, open in front of you or on your phone and the notes uh, as well. You'll see uh, just the second point on the notes, uh, just a summary, a few statements to navigate us into chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Uh, Verse 1 is a linking verse, just note that verse. Uh, and how important it is. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Um, uh, that's a kind of convoluted sentence if you were writing English, but what the sentence uh, means is walk or, walk or live out who you are. So chapters 1 to 3, live it out. Chapters 4 uh, to 6. Chapter 4, 1 to 16, divides in two. Uh, 1 to 6, maintaining unity, Uh, 7 to 16, growing uh, to maturity. Two big, big principles or planks or pillars for every local church. Uh, Here's a a vision for the coming year. Maintain unity, grow into maturity. Maintain unity, grow into maturity. Last time we looked at verses 1 to 6 on maintaining unity. We got as far as uh, verse 3. I think the key verse is verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. We are to maintain unity, not attain unity. We are to maintain what we already have, uh, maintaining something that chapters 1 to 3 has given us in Christ. What is the unity we are to maintain? There's a good question. What do we mean by Christian unity? There's a phrase that is used often as loosely as grace. What unites us to one another in this room and to Christ? Well, Paul gives us a sharp description of that in verses 4 to 6. We didn't get to that last time, so very quickly here. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and uh, through all. Now, you hear these words often. What do they mean? Let me repeat these words, applying them directly to you as real Christians, part of this real local church. Every single one of us as a real Christian is equal, equally saved. Think of those around you. Look at them. Equally saved, equally blessed, equally indwelt by the living Spirit of Christ. We're the same Heavenly Father, with the same Lord Jesus Christ. And so God says over the top of us to us tonight, physically sitting here as real Christians, there is one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all. There is a supernatural unity in this room that we are to maintain. Now, you will have noticed that I used the word real Christian or real local church. And by real Christian, I mean someone in whose life what is described in this letter and in the New Testament as a whole has happened. A real Christian is someone who has been saved from death to life by grace through faith. Because the apostles' words, and they speak for Jesus and give us his authentic message, say that a real Christian is someone Ephesians 2, has been saved from death to life by grace through faith. A real Christian is someone who knows their salvation is entirely due to God's mercy. A real Christian is someone who knows they have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. If you do not know these things in your life, you are not a real Christian, says Jesus through his apostles' words. And he and I, as his messenger, implore you to sort that out before it is all too late. Equally, do not fall into the trap of thinking Paul's description in verses 4 to 6 covers everybody who calls themselves a Christian, or every church or every grouping or body of churches. If there is such a thing as a real Christian there is such a thing as real unity. Real Christian unity is what Jesus says real Christian unity is through his apostles' words. Real unity is defined by clear convictions about God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Convictions about, for example, how someone is saved, Ephesians 2 and conviction set out clearly across the pages of the New Testament. Why are we exhorted to maintain unity? Because we can damage it, undermine it, or even lose it in our churches. Why? Because we are living in the not yet time when we still battle with sin. And so what is the practical application for verses 1 to 6? It's there in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. I promised you last time that I'd give you an illustration of what each of these means in a church like Chalmers in the context of a small group. Here's my illustration, all humanity. Think of your small group or people that you are connected with in the church. Think of them, picture them in your mind now. Your attitude to them is born of a constant awareness in your own life of who you were before Jesus took a hold of your life. And but for God's grace, you still would be still. And that attitude means that you do not judge them or think you are better than them. All gentleness. Think of that person in your mind. Kindness. Compassion particularly when they are struggling to come to terms with or understand a bit of the Bible or an area of teaching. Don't jump down their throat with the answers. Be gentle. Never affirm them in their error. Never call untruth truth, but be gentle, kind, and loving. Patience. Picture that person in your mind. Time to listen to them. Time to help them grow. Time with people who are not humble, gentle, or patient. Accepting it takes a long time for other people to change because if you are truly honest with your own life, it took you and is taking you a long time to change. Realize that you are a work in progress, just like them. Or say someone in your group is really struggling with the studies that you are looking at in your small group take time to meet up with them one-on-one. Let them know you are willing to listen and bear with one another in love, accepting others' mistakes in the spirit that you would want them to accept yours, getting on with people, especially those who might rub you up the wrong way, whether it is through their personality or manner, conscious that you almost certainly have do or will rub them up the wrong way because of your personality and manner now that's where we got to plus the bits we didn't uh, square off let's move to verses 7 to 16 they are not about maintaining unity they are about growing to uh, maturity now they're quite complex verses just immediately regretted saying that (laughs) Um, they're not complex at all. Um, what I've tried to do is use the headings on the sheet to navigate our way through what Paul is saying. And the, the reason I say they're complex is because it would be very easy for us to misunderstand them. And you'll see what I mean in a moment. First, uh, the notes on the back of the service sheet. A church growing to maturity is the aim. So what's Christ's aim for Chalmers Church. And always keep in mind that the church, in the context of the New Testament, typically means a local church, like Chalmers. Let me show you from the text that a church growing to maturity is the aim Paul has in mind. So read with me the second half of verse 12, where Paul refers to building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the aim is maturity in a local church. And then again, in the second half of verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. A church growing to maturity is the aim. A good analogy is a child growing to maturity. A boy grows up and becomes a man. A girl grows up and becomes a woman. With maturity comes responsibility, the ability to lead, make wise decisions, nurture and protect. After church this morning, there was a group of little boys who will remain nameless Because some of their parents are here, up to mischief, running, hiding, watching to see if their parents were watching. Why were their parents watching? Because they are children and not responsible, not able to be, not safe without their parents' protection. And so it is with a church. Churches need to grow up from being children to maturity. Paul's assumption that a church can behave in a way that is childlike spiritually, or a church can be led in a way that is childlike spiritually. A church can be like a toddler, running around unchecked, unsafe, and with no one watching, can so easily run out onto the road. Now, if a church growing to maturity is the aim, what exactly is maturity and immaturity in a church? What is Christian or spiritual maturity? And these verses in Ephesians are just great for us because they define what unity is and what it's not. And they define what Christian maturity is and what it's not. So Paul gives us a really sharp definition of maturity, and then by Flipping the coin over immaturity in verses 13 and 14. Let's read them again. This is what maturity is in a church. When we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now let me pick out the key phrases. There are three. Unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, stature of the fullness of Christ. So what is a mature church where there is unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, stature of the fullness of Christ? Unity of the faith that little phrase, the faith, is a key phrase in Paul's writing. It means shared, clear convictions or Christian truth. What convictions? What truth? Well, the convictions, the truth, Paul has set out in this letter about Jesus, about the gospel, about conversion, about the church. On Sunday mornings and in our small groups, we're studying Acts. That book was written that we might have certainty as to what the authentic message of Jesus is. A message he gives us through his apostles' words. That's the faith Paul refers to here. Unity of the faith is unity in a church, clear convictions about Jesus' Christian truth. A church that knows and lives by the faith is a church that is united around clear convictions and truth. That is a mature church. The phrase, knowledge of the Son of God, is on the same line. The heart of Christian truth is Jesus. Clear convictions about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, how we are to respond to Jesus. A mature church is knowledgeable about the Son of God, Jesus. It knows about Jesus And so it knows Jesus. Now that's critical. Roger was on that this morning. A church that is committed to being shaped by Jesus' words through his apostles is a church where community is richest. A church which knows about Jesus through his words is a church that knows Jesus Christ. What does the phrase, the stature of the fullness of Christ, mean? I wonder if what Paul has in mind with that phrase is Christ-like wisdom, discernment, maturity, honesty, stability. So what does spiritual maturity look like in a church? Unity of the faith, knowledge of Jesus, stature of the fullness of Christ. Let me paraphrase all of that. They know the truth, and they know what is not the truth and what to do. A mature church is a church that knows the truth, knows what is not the truth, and knows what to do. And so verse 14, and here is an insight into what immaturity is, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. A mature church is not taken in by the latest teaching or the latest thing. They are not tossed around like a skiff on the waves of distorted teaching or controversy. They are like a well-built boat with a deep keel that rides the waves, steady in a storm, steers a straight course, and they are discerning, wise, mature, honest, stable, against the smart, cunning, crafty schemes of those who seek to undermine the faith. Now, how does a church grow to maturity? If maturity is the aim, And Paul has told us what maturity is. How does a church grow into that maturity? Very practically, what should we be doing in Chalmers? And are we doing it so that we are growing into spiritual maturity? Now look with me at the two bookends of our passage, verses 7 and 16. Verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, just a brief comment on verses 8 to 10. Uh, These verses simply make the point, and uh, Paul does that by quoting from a psalm, that Jesus, who came to earth and then returned, ascended to heaven, gives gifts to his church or gifts people to continue his mission on the earth until he returns. That's what verses 8 to 10 uh, mean. But back to verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then verse 16, the other bookend, The whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, put Ephesians down on your lap or lift up your eyes from your phone, and when you read about Jesus giving each of us gifts, verse 7, and about the body growing together, we might very easily default to a passage in the Bible like Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul, the same writer as Ephesians, speaks about the church growing to maturity when the different gifts God has given to people in that church, like teaching or serving or encouraging or leading, When those who have been gifted in these different gifts use these gifts in the service of the church, then the body that is the church grows into maturity. So our body has arms and legs, kidneys and toes, and a lot more. So different gifts, whether teaching, leading, serving, and so on, or administration, or or all manner of gifts, different gifts make the body a body, and the different parts work together and means the body is healthy. Now, Paul may have that in mind in verses 7 and 16. People using their different gifts to build up the body, that whole range of gifts, but that's not his emphasis here in Ephesians. He may have it in mind, but it's not his emphasis. The particular emphasis here in Ephesians is that a church grows to maturity when everyone speaks the truth in love. A church grows to maturity when everyone speaks the truth in love. Now, let me show you that, and it's really important. Look at verse 7 again. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, yes, a whole range of gifts have been given by Jesus to build up a church in maturity. But Paul has in his mind here, as he writes Ephesians, a particular set of gifts. What is Christ's gift that he wants us to emphasize here in Ephesians in this passage about a local church growing up into maturity? We'll look at verse 11, verses 7 and 11 really run side by side. They're just broken up by that that kind of parenthesis to take us back into an Old Testament proof text. Here are the gifts that Paul wants us to focus on here in Ephesians as how a church like Chalmers grows up in maturity. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry For building up the body of Christ. And now look on to verse 15. Would have been a lot easier if Paul had put it on one page. That's not Paul's fault, is it? Look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together with every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Verses 11 and 15 go together. Verse 11, Christ's gift to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So what equips the saints? That's all of us. For the work of ministry that is building up the body of what equips us, speaking gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. These gifts are Christ's gift to the church to equip people for the work of ministry that builds up the body of Christ. What are the works of ministry here in Ephesians that these word gifts equip people to do? The works of ministry must be what Paul writes in verses 15 and 16, speaking the truth in love. That's how the body grows, when everybody speaks the truth in love. Let's just pause. We're going fast. What a wonderful, wonderful insight that is to how a church grows. My default is to think a church grows like this. People like me and Raj and Sam and Johnny and Robert and others who preach here stand up here and we preach our hearts out and what happens is we're all liberated, those of us with the gift of administration, the gift of serving, the gift of leading, to get on and do it. So that is what happens. It is. But Paul says, hang on a minute here. What that also gifts us to do And perhaps this is primary, is it gifts every single person in a church to speak the truth in love. And all over the church family, on Sundays, in small groups, in one-on-one intentional discipling, truth is spoken in love. Truth is spoken in love. And that body, body grows into maturity. No longer a child but a mature body that displays and lives out the fullness of Christ. Now let's unpack this a little more. Who are the apostles and prophets? Look back to chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. Chapter 2, verses 20 to 22, he's talking about the church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the horner stone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Who are the apostles and prophets? Well, it's not the Old Testament prophets because the order is wrong. It would be prophets and apostles. Moreover, they come after Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone, the first stone in the foundations that are the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and prophets must be in the age of the church, the age of the New Testament. So who are they? Apostles, well, it's clear who they are. People like John and Paul. But what about the prophets? They cannot be those gifted with prophetic gifts, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12... Because the prophets with the apostles here are foundational ministries. I think Paul is referring here to people like Mark and Luke. Not apostles like John and Paul, but inspired to write significant chunks of the New Testament. What's next? Evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Shepherds and teachers is one office in the New Testament often translated as pastor-teacher. Who are these people? The evangelists and shepherd and teachers. Well, they are what we would call in the church today evangelists or ministers after the age of the apostles and prophets. People like me and Rog and Johnny and Sam and Robert, whose job it is to teach the words of the apostles and prophets so that you will all be equipped to speak the truth in love. That as a church we will grow in spiritual maturity. Which is why we have Sundays. Now we have Sundays because it blesses us. We have Sundays because we enjoy seeing each other. I hope. But we have Sundays because truth is spoken in love and we grow up into Christian maturity and we become more and more useful in God's hands which is why we have small groups which is why we encourage one-to-one intentional discipleship what happens in all of these contexts Sunday small groups one-on-one what do we prioritize speaking the truth in love What happens when that happens? The church grows in maturity and it is safe, steady, discerning, useful to God, shines clearly. That's why we have Sundays in small groups and one-to-one. Why would you join a small group? Because you have time? Because you would like to get to know people better? because you want people to know about what's going on in your life so they can share and pray for you, all good things. Why join a small group? Why have them in chambers? Because it is a key way in the New Testament for churches to grow up into Christian maturity. Now, finally, what is speaking the truth in love? And with this we close. Three words I've highlighted in the notes. Speaking, truth, and love. What is speaking the truth in love? Number one, it is speaking. It's very striking just how big a deal speaking is to God. God said, let there be on day one. And there was. Jesus Christ immediately followed the person who stood at the top of the prophetic queue, John the Baptist, who was a preacher, Jesus began his own public ministry, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, with a message. He commissioned the apostles to proclaim. The church in the world grows when the word of God is in the hands of the Spirit of God. And a church grows to maturity when people speak to one another. And you're all thinking, what? What's the answer? Truth. How do we know what to say? We pick up our Bibles. We read them together. We teach each other from Scripture. We have sermons from the Bible. We let God's voice speak. We grow up together, therefore, with clear convictions about Christ and the gospel and eternity and the age in which we live and the reality we saw this morning about setbacks and progress we speak truth and we do so in love because unless I've got this totally wrong we are all broken people with many many needs what's not speaking the truth in love A. not speaking so how are you Oh, I'm fine Speaking the truth in love, what's it not? Not speaking to each other. Or truth without love. What's truth without love? Well, truth without love is truth without love. You know how you avoid truth without love? Is it you remember that you were in the realm of Ephesians chapter 2 in death, brought to life by Christ through his gospel, and so that humbles you and you speak Truth with love. What's love without truth? Well, it's love without truth. But it's not love, is it? It's just no truth. Let me illustrate as we close on a Sunday what is truth in love. Truth in love is not missing out. Acts chapter 5 in our series and acts as roger preached this morning. A passage about our sincerity and honesty and integrity before a holy God. That's truth. And how is it preached in love? Well, listen online, and you might hear someone who applies that to their own heart. Speaking it in love. In our small groups, in our motto series, what is speaking the truth in love? Evangelism is for everyone. That's truth. In love, isn't it awfully hard? That's truth and love. Or in the Christian life, matters of morality. Whenever you speak in a corporate context on matters of morality in the Christian life or human sexuality, always, always, always assume that for the majority of the people who are listening, these are not battles that are a million miles away, and therefore you speak the truth in love, but you don't change the truth because that is not loving in the end. Or one-to-one intentional discipleship, what does truth in love look like? Honest, humble care for one another. The willingness to be honest and direct and accountable. Corrective, honest questions. But here's the last thing I want to say. What does speaking the truth in love look like when two people sit down and costa together? Yes, it's about asking tough questions. You know what it really is about, though, in the end? Sitting down and reading about Jesus. Sitting down and reading about him. Sitting down and reading about him. Around whom, in whom, through whom, and for whom. All our convictions find their hook. It's not an unrealistic vision. Well, here's an unrealistic vision. We're going to plant ten churches. That's silly. Here's a, a realistic vision that seems to be awfully elusive. All over a church like Chambers, people meeting up one-on-one in their house groups, whatever it is, and reading about Jesus and speaking about Jesus and praying Jesus into the souls of each other. And that church suddenly or over a period of time, shifts from being a child to a teenager, or from a teenager to a mature adult, and a church with which and to whom the Lord Jesus Christ, the King and the head of every church, is able to use. Right, let's pray. Father God, we pray that uh, these truths that we have wrestled with tonight, and there's a lot in here, would impress themselves on our souls and hearts, that we would as a church family here be a church that really does, across the board, in and out, through all our groups and one-on-ones, speak the truth in love. Lord, it's been a day where your word has spoken to many hearts, and we would want to take a moment as we come to the Lord's table now as we come to the very heart of the heart of the gospel's truth, to humble ourselves before that truth and thereby in these few minutes ahead of us grow up some more in Christian maturity. Take and apply all these truths to our hearts and in our lives. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.